This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we're coming to you from Vienna, Austria, and Webster University's Global Media Trends Conference. But our attention is on Cuba as it prepares for a visit from Pope Francis. We'll also discuss violence and religion in Latin America. But first, Natalie Ottinger has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Comedian Jimmy Morales may not have won the Guatemalan election this past weekend, but he pulled off a political upset. He finished as the front runner in the first round of elections, with about 24% of the vote. Earlier in the summer, Morales was in third place. The television personality has no previous political experience, but he said he was thankful the Guatemalan people were putting their trust in him. I'm prepared to serve, but I'm not alone. One man cannot change the nation by himself. After we win, we will assemble our administration and my team will include many notable people. Political experts believe Morales capitalized on an anti-establishment mood, the same mood that had the country's protest movement successfully seeking the resignation of former President Otto Perez Molina. It remains unclear who will face Morales in the runoff election set for next month. Former First Lady Sandra Torres is the comedian's likely opponent. She was running in second place in informal ballot counts. However, she was only 5,000 votes ahead of Manuel Valdison. Valdison's vice president running mate was implicated in one of the many corruption scandals marring the election season in Guatemala. Also, this week, a judge ruled that former President Beres Molina must face trial on corruption charges. He remains in jail without bail. Investigators for the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights says the Mexican government botched the investigation into the kidnapping of 43 students last year. The government had said students were turned over to a drug gang by local police. The government blamed the gang for executing the students and burning their bodies. However, the Inter-American Commission report said the government's investigation was flawed and ignored much of the forensic evidence. The report said there is no forensic proof to support the government's theory of the case. This finding vindicates the parents of the students who have long protested that the government was covering up the real story. Mexico's president has promised a new investigation. A judge in Venezuela has found opposition leader Leopoldo Lopez guilty of charges that he intentionally incited riots which led to the deaths of at least 43 people last year. Lopez faces sentencing today, Friday, September 11th, and he could receive as much as 14 years in prison. International human rights groups, including Amnesty International, have condemned the charges against Lopez. And many believe the trial against him was rigged. The results of the trial have ignited new protests and violence between opposition groups and police in Caracas. Smuggling may seem like business as usual in Latin America, with illegal drugs headed north and illegal guns headed south daily. But now comes the story of illegal iguanas on their way to Africa. Authorities in Ecuador have detained a man this week for attempting to smuggle 11 endangered iguanas out of the Galapagos Islands. The islands are home to at least 50 species of animals that are found nowhere else in the world. The unsuccessful smuggler was trying to get the iguanas to Uganda. By the way, 
Authorities in Ecuador say the illegal trafficking of animals is the third most profitable illegal activity in the world, behind the smuggling of drugs and guns. For Latin Pulse, I'm Natalie Ottinger. Thanks, Natalie. This week, we look ahead to the latest visit of Pope Francis to Latin America, this time to Cuba later this month. We spoke to Andrew Chestnut at Virginia Commonwealth University about the Pope's trip. Chestnut is the author of Competitive Spirits, Latin America's New Religious Economy. Our conversation ranged through many topics, including how the Pope might deal with the Castro brothers, Raul, the current Cuban president, and Fidel, his legendary predecessor. We also discussed the controversial canonization of Father Unipero Serra, a Franciscan missionary who founded missions from Baja, California to Carmel, California, when the area was part of Mexico. Here are excerpts from our conversation recorded via Skype from Richmond, Virginia. I would say that that in this case, the visit really, really is more connected to his diplomatic triumph and, and really being the architect, the, the lynch person, if you will, of uh, the diplomatic rapprochement of restoration of diplomatic relations between the United States and Cuba, which had been broken for over 50 years. So, yeah, I, I really think that even more, while the religious front is obviously very important to uh, this, the, the, the paramount reason here really is uh, the victory lap for, for the great diplomatic achievement of restoring the relations between these two, uh, these two North American neighbors. He is one of the most unpredictable popes that we've ever had, but there should be some predictability to this particular trip, yes? We won't expect any um, you know, pointed direct criticism of the regime, particularly since there has been a detente and opening in recent years, in, in large measure due to, uh, due to the efforts of the Vatican uh, going back to the 1990s, um, particularly on the religious front greater measure of religious liberty in Cuba than there's ever been. Um, religion in general across the board really seems to be resuscitating on the island. So I, I'll, I'll expect kind of more a continuing engagement rather than any kind of sharp or pointed criticism uh, that, that some in the United States, particularly some of the Cuban Americans, uh, might wish for. Um, you know, also on the religious front, uh, uh, Cuba is the least Catholic country of all Latin America. The last statistics I looked at from a recent uh, Univision-sponsored survey earlier this year show that only 27% of Cubans are Catholic. If you add in the uh, evangelical Protestants on the island, only 35-36% of Cubans are Christian. So, in also this larger context of uh, massive hemorrhaging of members of the Catholic Church throughout Latin America, uh, Cuba obviously is one of the gravest situations as well. So on another front, uh, the Cuban Catholic Church is actually one of the most respected institutions. That's another aspect uh, that's demonstrated by this Univision survey. So while the great majority of Cubans are not Catholics and even less of the Catholics are practicing Catholics. I think that, that there's a hope that this larger kind of detente and opening up of Cuban society, um, part of that can be a possible revitalization of the Catholic Church. Last time we talked, we, we talked about the surprise that 
Raul Castro, the president of Cuba, admitted that this pope might actually make him come back to the Catholic Church. Uh, does that show you the power of this particular pope? Yes, I, I think it does. And, um, you know, interesting that the Castro brothers uh, received a, a world-class Jesuit education. The Jesuits have been known in Latin America for educating the elite, the elite of the region for centuries. And so, so yeah, the fact that, that a dyed-in-the-wool communist atheist would be so excited about this particular papacy um, <laughs> is really nothing short than, than miraculous. However, I should also say that, that there is a long tradition, um, particularly with, um, with Fidel, of being a, a, a big fan of liberation theology. In fact, uh, there's been lots of interviews with, uh, with uh, Brazilian theologians, Brazilian journalists in particular about this. And so, you know, to some extent, we see Pope Francis resurrecting uh, important aspects of liberation theology. And of course, this resonates, this resonates with both of the Castro brothers as well. So there's that point of contact as well. Um, and also, you know, the pointed criticisms of the global capitalist system uh, also obviously resonate uh, among those who are still communists in, in Cuba. The Pope will be going to Cuba as a bit of a preface before his tour of the United States. And this particular issue of criticizing the capitalist economies of the world uh, is, is no veiled issue when it when it comes to the United States. Uh, what do you think will be happening in Cuba that will also have some resonance um, in the next few days afterward when the Pope is in the United States? I would look for Pope Francis on the heels of his South American tour uh, to to tamp down the level of his anti-capitalist rhetoric both in Cuba and especially in the United States. Um, the, the latest polling we have actually show a rather sharp decline in his popularity in the United States. It's still relatively high, but, but he has suffered a drop in the past year or so. Um, and I, I believe the polling was taken after on the heels of a South American trip too. So, and also given that, that the United States is also kind of the headquarters of, of some of his more active um, conservative Catholic opposition as well. I think both in Cuba and the United States, we can look for a more moderate, uh, more moderate criticism, more moderate rhetoric than we saw uh, during his South American tour. We have seen the Pope this year take the bold step of, of making a, an entire framework around global warming and the environment. But, but we did, he, he did not get into the other controversial areas that we tend to think of when we th think about the Catholic Church, about abortion, gay rights, the right to, to die with dignity. All those have been on the table in the past and not really discussed in any of these trips. So could this polling reduction have something also to do with, with, with not confronting those issues head on? I think a lot of those those more social hot button issues are really closer to you know the heart of conservative Catholics, particularly in the United States. We in the, in this latest polling, we also see a drop off 
among more liberal sectors, both of Catholics and non-Catholics in the United States, because I think I think there's a certain mm, disenchantment realizing that that he probably our misinformation thinking that you know he was going to be the champion of of implementing gay marriage in the church and such and i think so i think there's also a realization on the part of more liberal elements in the united states uh that this isn't going to happen uh in the near future and especially not during his papacy as well so so the general decline in popularity in the united states while it tends to be more accentuated among conservative elements, particularly conservative Catholics, it also has happened among liberals as well. It is unusual, though, to see a pope um, in this hemisphere uh, twice in a summer, and, and so we do see him paying a lot of attention to this particular hemisphere. Uh, again, his Latin American background adds to that, but we haven't talked to you since that Andean trip uh, do you think there's something to note about that Andean trip um, that will help us understand the Cuba trip and the trip to the United States? I think, you know, one of the highlights of it was uh, was his most fullest apology yet uh, ever from the Vatican of the church's role in the conquest and colonization of Latin America, particularly vis-a-vis the indigenous populations, because he was mostly in countries that have very large indigenous populations. In the case of Bolivia, actually the majority are indigenous. Um, And so it will be interesting to see if he follows up with that. Of course, the Catholic Church was also involved in African slavery. And many times there weren't the debates and qualms about being involved in African slavery in the Americas that there were about the indigenous, the plight of the indigenous people in Latin America. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, some might expect him to go to Cuba and make a similar apology following up on his apology for the, for the conquest in, in South America, similar apology for the church's role uh, in the slave trade, of course, you know, Cuba being one of the centers of that uh, in the Caribbean. So that will be interesting. And then when we move to the United States, we also have the various curious upcoming canonization mass of, uh, of Friar Junipero Serra. Uh, this is a done deal, but, but there's a lot of Native Americans and those who sympathize with Native Americans who are opposed to the canonization. Not so much on, on the merits or lack of merit of Serra himself, but kind of seeing Serra as the poster boy for European religious colonialism in the Americas. And, you know, is it not contradictory that especially a pope from the Americas and from a country that that has an indigenous population and a pope who just apologized for abuses uh, committed by the church related to the conquest is going ahead and canonizing this figure. So that's also, I think, an interesting story, particularly for the United States visit. Well, let's talk about Sarah here for for a bit, in in that many do see him as an icon for the type of colonialism, uh, imperialism, and genocide, frankly, that happened uh, in the Americas, um, brought about by not just European conquerors, but but also... um, Catholics and Catholicism. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, he's, he's a polemical figure. And um, 
again, it wasn't so much that that you know that he was a cruel taskmaster, but but he was part of the overarching uh, colonial system, both political and religious, in the Americas, and and you know no doubt had a, a patronizing pa patriarchal view of the indigenous. Um, and I, I think sometimes there's an expectation on those who, who become saints that they're men and women kind of ahead of their times. And I don't necessarily think that, that this was necessarily the case for Junipero Serra. Um, but, but again, I think it devolves back to this larger issue that for many Native Americans, he is that symbol that, that you were referring to. And in the larger context of if, if one particular segment of, of Latin America or American society in general from Canada down to the Argentina has defected from the Catholic Church, it's been Native Americans, indigenous people. They have left the church at greater rates than any other segments of the population in Latin America. So strategically... Uh, it would have been wise also for the Vatican to rethink that in terms of these this just hemorrhaging of indigenous people, particularly to, to Pentecostal churches. Thank you so much. Andrew Chestnut of Virginia Commonwealth University, the author of Competitive Spirits, Latin America's New Religious Economy, among various books, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn, indignate, act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Earlier this summer, we spoke to Alex Wilday, the editor of the new book, Religious Responses to Violence, about his new project. Wilday is a research fellow at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. He joined us via Skype from Paris, France. I think one of the great contributions of the book is that it is based on very recent, fresh, on-the-ground research by people who really know the countries and the specific settings and so forth in which they are looking at the church. I think another contribution it makes, frankly, is to take religion seriously as a way of understanding the world. The book, I mean, you know, and I think most of your listeners know, that Latin America has gone through an extraordinary period of religious dynamism in the last half century or so. In the Catholic Church, it was associated with the reaction uh, of the uh, Latin American Church to the Second Vatican Council and a series of things, Medellin, the meeting of Latin American bishops, liberation theology, all of that. But also this enormous growth, which is somewhat more recent, of evangelical Protestantism. So that in many ways, Latin America is a very religious um, region. I mean, it's extraordinarily so. And that, it, it's, that landscape has really changed uh, over the last 50 years. So one of the concerns of the book is that, is there a relationship 
between that religiosity that we see in Latin America and both the violence we see appearing there in the past and in the present, but also how the, how the churches, the Catholic Church, but also the Evangelical and Pentecostal churches, how they respond to that violence. You and I were talking a little earlier before we started about the, the Northern Triangle. I mean, we have several uh, papers, uh, several chapters in the book that uh, address this, this kind of issue and address the issue of youth gangs and so forth and criminal activity. These are different issues in a country like, let's say, El Salvador than they were in the time of the uh, guerrilla insurgency there and of the counterinsurgency uh, by uh, the army. So, and that's true of Guatemala, and that's true uh, of Honduras as well. So, these are still very violent countries, as they were in the past, but the violence has changed. So, how, does, how do religious actors understand this change? And do they still try to do something about it or not? Or do they just stand aside? Those are some of the kinds of questions that we we were trying to address uh, in in the uh, in the book. So I, I will ask you then, what are some of the answers that that you and your authors found specifically in those cases where you see liberation theology being very controversial during the Civil War period, and then some would say going away, and now perhaps with the Pope's influence coming back, but does liberation theology speak to the conditions in Honduras or in El Salvador? Well, I think it does um, in, a, in several very basic senses. Liberation theology was very much linked to the notion of accompaniment, pastoral accompaniment, or acompañamiento, that the idea that the church had to live close to the people, be very much involved in their struggles and in their lives, and not to sort of represent them, but to be a witness and to accompany them, which is, the, of course, the um, exact translation. I think that idea, which is very much part of liberation theology, uh, survives. It has survived, one of the authors refers to it as, as liberationist spirituality. And it, it is liberation theology which no longer has this sort of Marxist overlay that it had in many uh, during the 1970s and 80, many places, but the, it still has this radical commitment to the poor. That implies also, I think, something which liberation theology also has a great deal, uh, I, I think, played an important role in legitimating, that is, that social conflict is part of democracy. So sometimes you get the feeling that, you know, the, the leaders in office would, you know, these social conflicts are just very annoying to them and they wish they would go away and they would like to have a lot of good press because they're trying to do the right thing. But the liberationists, I think, spoke, not, they were not the only people, but they did speak of the legitimacy of social conflict and that was something that had to be accepted. That was kind of a new idea in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church really, for a very long time, liked to have the idea that everything could be mediated, that there, you know, the conflict could kind of you know, basically be overcome. That exists, 
but it also there's a degree in which I think people understand that you cannot progress many times without social conflict. It's indispensable. So I think there's a greater awareness, at least in some sectors of the Catholic Church of that in liberation theology. And, you know, finally, I guess what I would say is that one of our chapters, actually by Virginia Burnett, um, historian from the University of Texas, very wonderful long chapter, argues essentially that liberation theology laid the groundwork for the church to accept the defense of human rights. And, you know, I think that's a discussable proposition. I think there were various various origins there. But it's, it definitely is persuasive that there was something there in which, for example, facing violence day to day with their congregants and indeed suffering it in themselves. Oscar Romero is just the most famous of the hundreds of martyrs, as you know, in places like Central America and, and South America as well, um, that they had to embrace nonviolence, active nonviolence, and human rights, the defense of basic human rights. So I think in all of those ways, it's a, there are interesting carryovers. But you're right, of course, it's not the same. Criminal violence is not the same. We, we have talked to some of your authors in the book in, in the past, and I'm thinking specifically of those who have written about Central America and the violence there. And um, some of the uptake I get from their work is that differently than the central government, which is not always present in countries like El Salvador and Honduras in the way that we in the West are used to governments having a presence, that the church is the one institutional presence besides the gangs. And we certainly see this in in the fact that for a time there was a truce in El Salvador. There was an, an attempt at a gang truce in Honduras. Uh, and now that that has broken down, the levels of violence are, are increasing in those countries, and the church may have been the real difference in those cases. Well, I think there is a role for institutional leaders like bishops, and in some ways that's what you're pointing to in the case of the gang truce in Salvador, although that's a, it's a complex reality and probably a little more complex than it's often understood. But I think what we found in our book about violence today, let's take Mexico, we have a wonderful chapter in there in Mexico on how the church is making an effort at the grassroots level with albergues, with shelters for Central American migrants that are being persecuted uh, as they move through Mexico toward the United States. Uh, and she compares several of them. There's no question that her, her chapter uh, very well reveals, I think, the general point that you're making is that the church is present in ways that the government often is not. It's, uh, and she has a very interesting sort of counter case in that same chapter, which is essentially a case made up of people from the government and from Mexican NGOs, which could not be sustained at the same time that the two shelters led by priests, for example, in these two different regions of the country went ahead. There, I'll give you another one other example, if you'll allow me on this. We have a wonderful chapter by a young anthropologist on evangelical ministries in Brazilian prisons. And so here is a case in which 
ministries which are, I mean, the Pentecostal churches are supposed to be, not supposed to be interested in social issues. And they're, but they are interested in them sometimes in their own very special ways. They are a presence in those prisons. And what he gives you a sense of is precisely that they represent a kind of a presence that the government cannot. And he's, he shows you that not only in the prisons themselves, but also in the neighborhoods where the, where the kids who are in jail came from. They're the churches, and the government really is not. This is in real. Thanks so much, Alex Wilde, the editor of the forthcoming book, Religious Responses to Violence, and a research fellow at the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. Join us via Skype from Paris today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse, coming to you remotely from Vienna, Austria. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs in Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, associate producer Natalie Oninger and technical director Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. Las Rocas Productions.